Before we begin this episode, something terrible has happened. About three weeks after I taped this episode you're about to listen to, there was a fatal shark bite in Western Australia. A 16-year-old girl lost her life. My thoughts are with her friends and family. I don't really know what to say. There were two options here. One was to delete or delay putting out a podcast about how to avoid a shark bite because it could be seen as insensitive. And another is that now is exactly the time to put it out because maybe people will pay attention to some of the dangers that are present. I don't make a penny on the podcast. I don't monetize. I don't ask for sponsors. And I have nothing to sell. I'm just someone who studies shark bites. In fact, I don't really study sharks. I study people and people's behavior. And the one thing I know is that there are things we can do. We can lower our risk. And it's important to protect people. Welcome to Shark Bites and Gay Rights. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Pepineff, the podcast to help you build a better dinner party conversation. From New York to Newtown and Darlinghurst to West Hollywood, this is the only podcast that talks about sharks and gays and assumes the gays are more dangerous. Every fortnight, the vibe will be the best stories and topics ever so we can activate your dinner party conversation and elevate your life. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Shark Bites and Gay Rights, the podcast. Today, we're talking in our inaugural episode about five ways to prevent a shark bite. And there are a number of different statistics and things that you sort of want to talk about, right? So the first is that there are 77 shark bites around the world a year. So to put that in context, there are about a hundred people who are killed by jellyfish a year, right? And our number for shark bites is going to be 10% of the 77. So about seven, eight people, unfortunately and tragically, lose their lives to shark bites. But these are not the thing that you think they are. And that's what we're going to talk about on this week's episode. And really in this podcast around shark bites and gay rights is that shark bites are a bit something different than what you've heard before. For instance, did you know that 40% of reported shark attacks have no injury? That's the statistic that when you look at the dimensions of human shark interactions between 39 to 42% of Human shark interactions are a shark swimming by, knocking into a kayak, knocking into a surf ski, a surfboard, whatever it is, but does not involve someone ever getting injured, 40%. And so if you take that out of the picture, you really change the way you think about sharks and change this relationship that we have with them. So part of the point of this podcast and the point of this episode is to try and convey a new relationship that we have with sharks, one that's respectful, one that is understanding that some people do obviously get bitten by sharks, and these are terrible events that happen for them and for communities. I did my PhD in the politics of shark attacks, looking at policy responses to shark bites in Australia, South Africa, and the U.S., 
And in that time, in the four years I spent doing my PhD, in the 16 years I've spent researching human-shark interactions, the one thing I've learned is that sharks are not the movie monsters they're made out to be. And this is an opportunity to have a new conversation, a new dialogue, and really to develop this into something that is more realistic and hopefully will help prevent a shark bite. So I want to go through my list. The jellyfish example that I noted at the beginning is a really good one because I was scuba diving in False Bay in Cape Town, South Africa, and I was swimming through great white shark and not infested. They were there. They were swimming in the ocean where they're sort of supposed to be. And I was scuba diving with Sarah Fowler, who's one of the world's leading shark scientists and my my dive buddy on that day. And we bumped into a school of 200 box jellyfish. So it's ironic. You're in the middle of the ocean swimming through an area known for its great white sharks, right? False Bay has Seal Island. So if you've ever seen air jaws and you've ever seen the sharks jumping out of the water and the people sort of pulling the seal decoy and getting jumped out of the water, that's where it happens. And I'm swimming through there without a cage. But the thing that was dangerous wasn't the shark. It was the jellyfish. And so we sunk to the bottom. Um, Sarah Fowler had given this cross sign with her arms where she puts one arm over the other. And it's basically forming an X. And that is a sign for sort of immediate danger if you're scuba diving. So I sunk to the bottom and laid on my back with my back to the ocean floor and watched as 200 box jellyfish that really just want to play with you. It's not, they're not looking to hurt you, but they are the most venomous creature on the planet Earth and gives the most deadly death that a human can experience. It's the most painful. Even while unconscious, your body will scream because of the pain. So 200 of them are swimming around in front of me and the great white sharks are swimming around and they're on the side of me. And I'm laying on the bottom going through my oxygen really in quite a hurry. So the box jelly here swim away and I surface because I'm out of oxygen. I'm, it's gone. It was gone, you know, in five minutes. But the way it is set up, when you scuba dive, you do it in a circle, like a semicircle, like a horseshoe, so that you end up back at the boat from where you start. I was on the wrong side. So I was as far away from the boat as you could get, about a thousand meters. So about 3000 feet or two thirds of a mile. And I am on the surface. And now I've just survived the box jellyfish. And now I'm going to swim across the surface for a thousand meters to get to the boat through great white shark waters. You know, the end of the story, the end of the story is I was fine. But the tricky thing is when you do a PhD in the politics of shark attacks, you know, funny statistics, like we just talked about that of the 77 shark bites that happen in the globe, 10% are sadly and tragically fatal. Well, I also know that 11% of shark bites happen getting in or out of the boat. So here I am swimming across the surface of the ocean, waiting to get to the boat. But I know that the boat isn't necessarily the solution to the problem. The boat could be the problem because 11% of shark bites happen getting in or out of the boat. So I get, and I'm all calm and I'm trying to be zen about this and I'm swimming across the surface. 
And then I just start to scream, get me out of the water. <laughs> I've made it 900 meters. I've got another 100 meters, 300 feet to go. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. Like I'm out of oxygen. I've survived the jellyfish. I'm trying to not be one of the 11% and I need to get out of the water. I get out and I'm in the boat and I'm hyperventilating now. I hope the point that I want to make in this podcast, which is that Sharks are to be respected. These are dangerous creatures. I'll talk all the time about how they're just fish and we turn them into movie monsters and things like that. But when you're in the open ocean swimming with them, you really need to bring respect. When you're having this conversation at a dinner party later tonight and you're conveying this story to your friends and we're talking about the 10% of shark bites are fatal and 77 shark bites happen and 11% happen getting in or out of the boat and 40% of shark bites don't involve an injury. That when we're going through these statistics, we go with reverence and respect both for the sharks and for the people who interact with them. And so that's one of the things I hope to do. But at the same time that I tell that story, and it's about reducing fear of sharks, I guess my point is, I would like this podcast and this episode to be something that reduces your fear of sharks, that doesn't increase it, that doesn't sensationalize it. I have a way to reduce your fear of sharks by 17% in one story. So I did an experiment with my friend, Dr. Tom Winter at Sydney Aquarium. And we went into, they have a shark valley where it's like a shark tunnel and people walk through and the sharks swim overhead and around you while you're there. So I set up five iPads on the way in and five iPads on the way out. And I was surveying them to see how they felt about sharks. And I prompted them with a few different questions. And when they went in, their fear of sharks is about a seven, and it's going to come down to five by the end of the story. What do you think I asked them? It went to this fundamental question about shark attack. What does shark attack mean to people? What it means is that sharks are intentionally coming after you, that there's intent that this isn't just a fish. The movie was right. It is a monster and we need to be careful and essentially need to destroy this movie monster shark that's coming after us. That's the solution to the problem. So Jaws was right. But Jaws was wrong. And I talk about it as the flaws from Jaws, that what if our conception was really completely different? Sharks have been around this sort of species of sharks for about 62 million years. And we've been swimming in the ocean recreationally for about 120. So what are the odds that the 62 million year old shark has any idea what we are? They don't. They're curious. They're defensive. We're a big thing where we don't belong, right? We are a land animal in the middle of the ocean. And that lets the other sea creatures know that there's something going on. So we end up in the ocean, but sharks do not have this idea of intent. They don't know what we are, so they can't have intent. So when we say shark attack, like sharks attack, we're essentially conveying intent where none really exists. Back to the aquarium. So we're in the aquarium and I set up the experiment. And I just asked one question, the people who went in, do you think the shark can see you? And when people went into the shark tunnel, 
It's called Shark Valley. When they went in, they stared at the sharks and realized that these fish, these sort of silky smooth fish, quite large, weren't looking at them, didn't know what they were, were sort of oblivious to the whole thing. And that reduced their level of fear by 17%. It's the only study that's ever been done that's reduced fear of sharks. And when they went out, they hit five instead of seven. And it has fundamentally changed conservation psychology around the world, that this idea of intentionality and intent is really a silver bullet for how we deal with the pathology that surrounds sharks and shark mania and shark panics. And so when we talk about shark attack, like you're going to hear me for as long as I do this podcast say that you shouldn't call them shark attacks. That's because of this study in this 17%. If everybody at a dinner party tonight and everyone having this conversation who's listening to the podcast stopped talking and using the phrase shark attack, and you would say shark bite or you'd say shark encounter. In California, they've changed the state uh, registry and they're called shark incidents in the whole state of California. The Australian shark attack file changed their name to the shark incident database. It's happening and people let it. This isn't something that sort of the media led or anything like that. This is something that was led by the grassroots, by people who understood that there's something funny here. It doesn't Maybe not all shark attacks are created equal. So there are four categories that take over human-shark interactions. And the first is a shark encounter. And that's when you bump into a shark, but there's no injury. The second is a shark sighting, when you just see a shark and they go by. So that's two categories we've already come up with where there's no injury to a human, right? And now we're going to have two where there are injuries. The third is called a shark bite. And the fourth is called a fatal shark bite. So we've got shark sightings when a shark swims by, wasn't marauding, wasn't cruising, wasn't lurking, wasn't stalking. It was swimming. A fish swims and sort of goes by, even if it bites the propeller. It's not a shark attack. It's not even a shark bite. It's a propeller. If you take a metal pole and if you stick it in the ocean, it's got major wattage to it. And so what you end up with is a scenario where boat propellers put out sort of tremendous amounts of energy. It's like a big light underwater and it draws attention to it like moths to a flame. And so sharks come along and bite the propeller like a moth flies into the flame. You end up in a scenario where you've got shark sightings, shark encounter, shark bite, fatal shark bite. And do I think there is ever a scenario where there is a shark attack? Yes, I do. There was an incident that happened in Little Bay here in Sydney. I don't want to go into the details of it, but what I can say is that most shark bites fall into three categories. Defensiveness, where the shark thinks you're there to attack it. Curiosity, remember sharks don't know what you are. And the third is investigation, which could be potential prey, right? Sharks do this with jellyfish, ironically. They also do it with, you know, whale carcasses and other things like that that sort of wash ashore. When they don't, they sometimes play with seaweed. 
And so they swim around and investigate and see if it's prey. And so it's sort of what is called in the literature, a bite and spit, <laughs> which is not helpful. But most shark bites are really shark spits that it's spitting you out. The moment a shark's teeth bite into something, it's like you and I biting into a bony piece of chicken, right? The teeth immediately register that there's not enough fat that's in the chicken to make it worth our while. So what that means is that biting humans is a biological failure for sharks. That doesn't mean that it can't still happen. There are some really ornery fish and wild animals out there that will bite anything. Let's turn the page and talk about the kind of activity that we do in the ocean, because not everything carries the same amount of risk. You want to know what's the most dangerous? That's what everyone wants to know. Spearfishing. I'm sorry, but spearfishing is the most dangerous activity you can do in the ocean. Because as soon as you remember that the spear gun has wattage to it, right? It's metal. So you bring it in the water, it sets off an energy pulse, and now you fire it in every fish in a three mile radius knows that you're there. Like people are worried about like drops of blood in the middle of fish oil and the shark can smell blood. No, 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 no. The shark can hear the spear gun. And as soon as that goes, every fish in the area knows that something's going on. And if you're a good spear fisherman or spear fisher woman or non-binary spear fisher person, then you end up in a scenario where you spear something. The fish is flapping and the sharks know it. And so they come to the area as well. So you've got the wattage from the spear gun. You've got the firing that sets the noise, and then you've got hitting something. And then there's a fourth category, which is what you do with the fish guts when you take it off the pole. There's a story about a hammerhead shark, and hammerhead sharks are not made. They're quite docile. They're scary because they travel in packs of hundreds and sometimes thousands. What you end up with is a scenario where Hammerhead sharks will go for fish guts, but what some spear people will do is they'll take it and stick it inside their breast pocket, like they'll unzip their scuba gear and stick it in and then zip the scuba gear back up like their wetsuit. What you end up with is a hammerhead shark that's really interested in the fish guts. So when you have shark attack, let's deconstruct the shark attack here. All right. You went in with the wattage and the spear gun. Then you fired the spear gun and made a noise. Then it hit a fish and started to flap. Then you stuck the fish guts in your wetsuit. And then a hammerhead shark comes along and goes for the fish guts. And we're calling that an intentional shark attack. That's what the media is going to do. That's not what has transpired. It's a terrible outcome. Like if you get bit, right? I'm not saying the outcome's not bad. I'm saying that that's not intentional. That's a series of variables have led to this in a way that we need to pay attention to because again, not everything is created equal. Spearfishing is very dangerous. What else is dangerous? Swimming? Incredibly safe. It's like five to 7% of all shark bites, which are a one in 11 million chance of being bitten by a shark, right? And in 5% of the one in 11 million are swimmers. Swimming is incredibly safe. Fishing for sharks while you're swimming is incredibly dangerous. 
And there are a number of incidents where you may see that. You may see the parents out there fishing for sharks. And it happens. It happens quite a lot. And then little kids are sort of playing in the water and a shark swims up and someone gets bit. And those are really tragic circumstances. Again, not intentional. You're fishing for sharks. You've got little kids playing in the water in around the fish guts. Again, not intentional. What about surfers? Can we deconstruct that for a second? Because it's really, really interesting. So sharks are opportunistic predators. They don't know what we are, but we're big things where we don't belong. So most shark bites on surfers are, again, defensiveness, curiosity, investigation. That's what we know. So you're sitting on the surfboard and you're in a very defenseless position, right? You're sitting there, your feet are dangling off the board. The shark is wondering, what is this big thing where I don't belong? Maybe it's here to hurt me. I'm going to investigate. I'll nudge it. I'll take a bite. I'll investigate. And we end up with really very serious incidents. There's two variables to remember when we think about surfers or when we think about spearfishing or scuba diving distance from the beach. Most people who get severe injuries from the shark, it's not because of the shark bite. It's because of the blood loss, which is a function of how far away you are from the beach. So if you're far out, I think about places like California where, you know, surfers surf really quite far out. Western Australia where they surf off the cliffs. So there's sort of a breakaway. It's you're not right on top of a beach like you might be in uh, Fort Lauderdale or something like that. And so you end up with a scenario where your distance from the beach is more dangerous than the presence of sharks in the water. Because we're land animals. We're not made to be in the water. When we get cut in the water, it's very bad for us. Ways to prevent shark bites include thinking about how far you are out in the ocean and what kind of risk that brings. With the advent of better wetsuits and better surfboards and surf skis and things, we spend more time doing more things for longer in the ocean than humans have ever done before. And more of us go. As a result of those four things, you end up with an increase in shark bites. And people say that that's because shark numbers are exploding. It's not because shark numbers are exploding. It's because you're doing more things with more people for longer, further out in the ocean, and like I say, in greater numbers. And so you are going to end up with more shark bites. Absolutely. But that's a product of wetsuits. That's a, that's a conversation about wetsuits. That's not a conversation about sharks. Can I give you one more example of something that's very safe to do in the ocean? Ocean swims. I know you're sitting there going, Chris, come on. Ocean swims. I've seen people doing ocean swims. I'm talking specifically about clusters of people who sort of go and splash, like the 300 and 500 people who go and do ocean swims off Sydney Harbor or Bondi to Kuji or do whatever it is they do. You've got these 500 people, like the serious ocean swimmers, This is important. You want to note this for your dinner party or for the rest of your life. When you go with a group of people and you splash, that makes a disturbance. It's different than you splashing to sound like a fish alone in the ocean. When you splash with 500 other people, that sends out a reverberation 
a noise that is very scary for sharks. And sharks keep their distance away from you. That's why swimming is so safe. Because when you swim between the flags and you swim with groups of people, that keeps the sharks at a distance. They did a study here in Sydney of ocean swims and they tagged a bunch of bull sharks and they followed them around an ocean swim a group of people who were swimming in the ocean in Sydney Harbor. And what they found is that the sharks kept an extra distance away from them. They don't know what you are. I don't know how many times I can say it. They don't know what we are. They don't know what we're doing. They don't know why we're making noise. They don't know what the noise is. And when you're a shark and you're an opportunistic predator and you don't know where something is, you tend to stay away because it could be dangerous. And so that's why swimming between the flags, swimming with someone else, splashing with someone else, these are really good ways to keep sharks away. So swimming between the flags, if you're listening in Australia or South Africa or other beaches where they plant flags, swimming between the flags is shark bite prevention. And we don't talk about it that way, but it's really important to think about it that way. Most shark bites happen between 11 and 2 p.m. Why? Are there more sharks between 11 and 2 p.m.? No, there are more people between 11 and 2 p.m. So again, just like the things that we were talking about before, most shark bites happen in concert with population trends, not blood in the water or anything like that. Oh, can I just say about the blood in the water? If you or I walked into a house and someone put a green pepper on the table, but your mom was cooking chicken and you walk into the house and it's, it's a roast chicken, it's a good one. Your mom's excellent at cooking chicken and you walk into the house and what's the first waft that you smell? The first thing you smell is the chicken. Can you technically smell the green pepper on the table? I mean, technically, can your nose smell it? You walked in the house. Yeah, it can technically smell the green pepper. But with the chicken roasting, that's going to dominate your senses. That's what the answer to the question is about sharks and blood. Sharks smell fish oil. Fish guts is chicken to them. And Blood from a human is the green pepper. It is not something you ever need to actually ever worry about. Sorry, I'm demystifying the blood issue. One other thing that I want to note here is that water temperature is key. When sharks don't swim at the surface of the water under all temperatures, we also don't talk about this. There is a sweet spot for shark temperatures. Great whites and bull sharks are a little bit different. So let's say you're in Pensacola, Florida, or you're in Fort Lauderdale, or you're in the Gulf of Mexico, Tampa. My cousin has a house in Tampa. That's bull shark territory. That is a warm night followed by a warm morning. Or if you're in Rose Bay or Sydney Harbor, a warm night followed by a warm morning will bring bull sharks to the surface in the summertime. This is what we always tell people who want, like to walk their dogs, and the dogs like to swim around in the bay. Not a good idea of a warm morning that's following a warm night in the summertime. Why is that? It's not because the bull sharks are sort of 
super excited, it's because bait fish will come to the surface and you'll see them sort of slapping around, right? You go in this warm night and a warm morning and you go to the beach and you look and you see little things sort of snapping around on the surface of the water. Well, that's their bait fish. And now that you've got the bait fish there, the bull sharks have come to the surface as well to feed on the bait fish. So you don't want to be running into that. On the Parramatta River, there used to be rowers, like little kids that would do like the rowing in the morning. And on these warm mornings, uh, bull sharks would come and bump into the kayak or bump into the rowboat. So note to self, stay in the rowboat. You just want to be sensitive to that temperature. If it's a cold night, it's safer than if it's a warm morning. What about great white sharks? Well, great white sharks do a couple things. The first thing that they do is they don't like it really warm and they don't like it super, super cold, not for coming to the surface. Their sweet spot is somewhere between 17 degrees Celsius and 23 degrees Celsius. So within that six degrees Celsius mark is when they really operate. If it's any more, if it's like 25 or something on the surface of the water, you're not going to have great whites in your area. That's why you don't have great white distribution up into the Great Barrier Reef, right? That's more tiger sharks and other things. You want to pay attention to water temperature. Let's just note here, let's do a quick recap. You've gone to the ocean today. We're going to approach the ocean in our relationship with the ocean the same way we approach our relationship with the shark, right? We treat the ocean as the wild, treat the beach like the bush. We do this with grizzly bears. We put bells on and we hide our food. I've got a friend who brings walkie-talkies when he goes out in the tall grass around brown snakes, which are a very venomous type of snake here in Australia. But we don't do it with sharks. We jump on a surfboard, we dangle our feet, we go out really far, we stay out there for five hours, and it's intentional when the shark shows up and bites us. That's the shark's intent. We have different standards and different stories that we tell for different fish or different animals. We treat the ocean like the wild, and we go out there, we check the water temperature, we look at our behavior, how far out am I going, how long am I going to be there, what am I doing, am I spearfishing, am I surfing, am I swimming, am I splashing, am I making noise, because am I doing it with other people? All of these things are shark bite prevention. So we've been going through this sort of list of ways to prevent a shark bite. This is it. This is the story that you're not hearing from anybody else. And and I'm sorry about that. I wish we talked about it more. Okay, I've got one more for you. Dolphins. If you see a dolphin, there's a shark nearby. Let's put this on the dinner party conversation, please. If you see a dolphin, dolphins are hunting. They are swimming for something that sharks also swim for, right? They eat the same things. They eat these bait fish. They eat other little fish. They eat saltwater salmon and all sorts of things. If you see a dolphin, there's a shark there. The presence of one means it is more likely to see the other. That's just something to keep in mind. It is more dangerous to go in the water if you see a dolphin. The dolphin will not protect you from the shark. That's an X sign that Sarah Fowler would give you if you were swimming with box jellyfish. The dolphin will not protect you. I'm sorry that, you know, all the children's stories. I'm not saying that dolphins aren't mammals. I'm not saying they don't have relationships with humans and find a connection with humans. I'm saying that 99.9% of the time that sharks and dolphins and humans are there together, the dolphin is not there to protect you. So get out of the water when you see dolphins. 
the presence of dolphins does not mean it's time to play with the dolphin. It means there's a shark there, so you should get out of the water, okay? So do not swim in the open ocean with dolphins. There used to be this same-sex dolphin experience you could have where you would ride a dolphin with your partner to the middle of a bay. And when you got there, the dolphin would take a ring out of its mouth and put it on the finger and that would be your engagement. And it was this dolphin experience. And I just kept waiting for the shark to show up. That's just something to think about. I might just note that you should never turn your back on a shark. So if you're like, Chris, all of these points were great. They worked out wonderful. Okay, what do I do when I see the shark? If one shows up, what do I do? The first thing is never turn. The shark can see you seeing it. Okay, it doesn't know what you are, but it doesn't know when you turn your back on it. And you keep the shark in your eyesight. They are opportunistic hunters. And if you turn your back and start swimming, they will come after you. So you swim backwards with your back to the ocean, to the beach, and you swim back to the beach. If you can punch it in the nose, is it a good idea to punch it in the nose? Yeah, sure. I would prefer to keep it away from you um, so that it's not close enough where you need to punch it. The rest of these methods that we've been talking about today, these unique methods of shark bite prevention are designed to keep you in a situation where you do not need to punch a shark in the nose. So let's focus on that. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shark Bites and Gay Rights. As a reminder, we talked about sharks this week and covered the 11% risk of a shark bite getting in and out of a boat, the danger posed by seeing dolphins in the water because dolphins and sharks eat the same things, and that most shark bites take place between 11 and 2 p.m. Until next time, I'm Dr. Chris Pepin-Neff, and thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening to Shark Bites and Gay Rights with your host, Dr. Chris Pepin-Neff. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe for free, and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. For more information about who we are and what we do, visit sharkbitesandgayrights.com.